Welcome back to the Strength and Speed Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Preparis. Not joining me is Brenna Calvert this week, but I do have another special guest. This week's episode is brought to you by Merrill. World's Toughest Mother with Wesley Kerr as Team Merrill in the team division, the two-man team division, coming up in a couple of days. So we're really excited about that. Uh, Merrill's been providing some awesome stuff, some compression gear for the tops, and some shoes. So personally, I like the... Uh, trail glove. It's a fairly minimalist shoe, zero drop. Um, uh, basically no insole, so when it gets wet, it doesn't really add weight. Uh, you can also check out their All Out Crush, which is their Tough Mudder branded shoe. A little more, a little more weight in it, which means a little more cushioning. Um, also a nice shoe. I've been using that in some of my training runs. Uh, so definitely check them out. They also sent me the softest jacket I've ever seen in my life. It's like a puffy jacket, but it's it's amazing. Um, and with that, we'll get to our guest today, uh, Jared Renier. Uh, Jared is a certified personal trainer with a bachelor's degree in fitness and wellness. He specializes in OCR athletes as well as general popu- population clientele. He's the owner of JREN Fitness, uh, which I talked about on, I think it was two podcasts ago, the call-in episode. Uh, Jared has completed several OCRs starting in 2014 and was a qualifier participant in 2016 OCR World Championships. Jared's currently studying for his master's in exercise science, and you can find him on Facebook at JREN Fitness. So, Jared, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Good. Well, it's great to have another uh, personal trainer on here. <laughs> ideas off people. And right. I think I think what's cool about personal training and nutrition and stuff like that is, you know, there's multiple paths to success, and not everyone has to agree on every aspect. So I'm kind of curious to see where our conversation takes us today. I I have a feeling just from prior conversations we're not going to be that different, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Um, Jared and I typically, after listening to other OCR podcasts, we usually chat back and forth via Facebook Messenger. So a lot of times I know we agree on stuff, but um, I'm sure we'll find something to disagree. All right, sounds good. So um, while I know most people are getting ready for World's Toughest Motor, myself included. There's currently, like, a ton of great content out there, so I don't want to bring you more World's Toughest Motor content. I want to bring something else. Uh, so if you do want World's Toughest Motor content, head over to Overcome and Run. I was just on their podcast uh, with Heather Bodie and Allison Ty. And then on top of that, Will Hicks from the World's Toughest Podcast has also been dropping episodes almost every day this week. So lots of good World's Toughest content out there. Instead, we're going to go to a different direction. We're going to talk about the off season since... A lot of people who raced OCR World Championships are not doing World's Toughest Mudder and are probably now in their off-season or they got like one or two races left. So, Jared, let's let's start off with that. So, what – as like, let's go with, you know, why is the off-season important? And uh, just kind of give me some of your thoughts on that. Well, for me, kind of my thought process, off-season is a time to fix what was broken during the regular season. So in season, let's say, you know, your obstacle completion was there, but your 
splits in between were not. So, okay, let's now it's time to work on that, you know, that half mile speed in between. Or let's say, you know, your speed was okay, but if you're doing a conquer the gauntlet or longer race, you know, after that five, after that 5k mark, after that three miles, you just, you know, run out of gas. Okay. Now we need to work on that aerobic threshold, just improving that gas tank, that sort of stuff. And, you know, the arguably most, you know, I don't want to say any one part is more important than the other, but, you know, the namesake of obstacle course racing, if you can't complete some of the obstacles, then we need to work on that sort of stuff. Right on. So good time to focus on our weaknesses based off of last season's results. Kind of sum up, right? Exactly. Okay. So let's let's take a couple different athletes, and if there's anything different, uh, kind of how would you – uh, schedule their off season, right? So, like, let's talk about you know someone who's doing something like a Tough Mudder X versus someone mm-hmm. who's doing like a Warrior Dash versus maybe a little bit longer like OCRWC versus you know the far end of the spectrum World Toughest Mudder. So, okay, uh, um, yeah, go for it. Yeah. So with the Tough Mudder X, um, that's obviously a very unique type of uh, competition. You have it's a you know a short course, but it's even shorter. It's you know arguably half or less than half of what most short courses out there are. So you've got, and then in in that you've got instead of just having ten different obstacles or something like that, you've got ten different obstacles that are tough mudder uh, style obstacles. So they're these big giant uh, grandiose things, and then you've also got ten. Uh, I believe that's right. Uh, ten. CrossFit-inspired workout stations that are usually stationed right before or right after um, those obstacles. So that's going to be a very unique training style. So with that, if that's what some, something that somebody's willing to focus on, uh, first and foremost, they're going to be hitting the weight room um, and be doing a lot of those explosive Olympic-type movements, um, that sort of thing. They're going to have to learn how to do some burpees. They're going to have to learn how to do those Olympic lifts, whether it's an overhead snatch, uh, um, overhead squat, things like that. Um, so just getting, one, learning the technique with that is going to be the most important uh, factor so someone's not hurting themselves, and then in, increasing the weight from there. Um, then also that's going to be a highly anaerobic workout, so in, trying to increase that anaerobic threshold as, as much as possible, increase that that ATP, and I'm going to go sciency on you guys, um, but increase that the fuel system for the sprints and also increase that kind of middle ground for the lactate system. Now, granted, being as how those uh, races are, you know, they're not done in two and a half minutes, um, there is going to be an aerobic standpoint as well, so you're going to have to do some long-distance running, uh, but with that, it's not, you know, I'm not going to go send anybody out on a five, ten-mile run with that in mind, you know, it might be, you know, let's work on a 5K, let's kind of keep that sort of stuff there where it is still in the anaerobic range, but someone's able to keep that pace fairly high between those uh, stations like that. So that would be for that for that style of competition. Um, the Rugged Mania or your Rugged Maniac Warrior Dash type, your 5K uh, mud runs, so to speak, where their obstacles are not as intense. You know, maybe work on some grip strength, just working on uh, holding your body uh, with your hands overhead. So, and I don't think off the top of my head, I haven't done a warrior dash, we're just going off of Rugged Maniac. 
Um, you know, those are, they don't have any weird grips on anything. So if you have, you know, I think just holding on to a pull up bar or something like that, you know, and trying to increase how long you can hold on to that will do wonders. Um, and then again, with those getting some more miles under your belt, so maybe that three to five mile range running there. Yeah. Um, let me jump in real quick. Yeah. Warrior Dash has yeah. one rig type obstacle. It's called Fisherman's Catch, but it's. Okay. It actually does have some like nunchucks in there, so kind of, some kind of hard it, stuff. But so it's it's a rig over water, but uh, above the water is a net, so you can actually just like <laughs> run across the net, kind of defeating the purpose of the rig obstacle. <laughs> you know, and like the rules, they don't say you have to cross only with your hands. Um, I always cross only with my hands because it just feels wrong to right. run run across the rig like the <laughs> floor of a rig. But I know, like I've seen, you know, I've seen, yeah, that is. seen pictures of people in the, you know, behind me, and you know, some of them just step on the net and keep running. I, I mean, technically that's within the rules, so yeah. It, it's technically within the rules, but I'm a big spirit of the obstacle kind of guy, uh, so I would want to go across that way. Um, but just putting your hands in the position of what you're going to hold. So whether it is, you know, if you have access to nunchucks, things like that, that will help. Um, but if you don't, there's ways to kind of fake that in the gym. So, uh, again, because to hold our own body weight, I'm a big proponent of weights, especially in the off season. Um, I'm a little, I, I think I'm a little on the heavier influenced weight side during season than a lot of people are, but we can kind of get into that a little bit later if we want to. But, um, so if you're doing like lat pull downs or something like that for, you know, overall strength in the offseason, just putting your hands in that position. So people are like, well, your lap pull down is a T-bar, or it's that long, wide bar. It doesn't necessarily have to be. Attach uh, kind of your rope grips that a lot of people use for uh, tricep pushdowns. Attach that. That way your hand is going to be in that kind of in that same position as to hold on to a nunchuck. Pull down that way, and then you're just kind of learning that muscle memory of holding on to weight in that position overhead. And then especially, you know, if you get into a position where you need to actually pull yourself up, Again, your brain is going, hey, we know how to do this, and then makes that just a little bit easier. So that is kind of grip training into the uh, Warrior Dash, Rugged Maniac type of stuff. Um, then, again, still have those people lifting weights because we're going to be moving our body through uh, something that's going to provide resistance, especially all that mud. Anyone who's gone even knee-deep in mud realizes that is not an easy task to move through. So... Uh, work on that again. It's going to be largely an or an aerobic activity, not an anaerobic activity. So you're going to be working at a pace that you want your body to provide oxygen. So again, we're going to, have to learn how to do those long runs and providing energy slowly for the body like that. Then ramping up to your longer races, your like you said, the uh, tough mutters, world's tough or your not world's toughest, but tough mutters and world championships your nine-mile races. Again, a lot of that same stuff, just going to be more miles under the belt. Um, there's going to be a lot of intervals in between. Um, so kind of working the whole body systems there. We want to work sprint systems for the explosion to get over walls, pull-ups, that sort of thing. We want to work that in-between system, that lactate threshold. The longer we can do that, we can kind of keep that fast pace for a little bit longer without burning out. And then, again, we still want to be able to kind of get into what they call that steady state, find your pace more or less that your body can just kind of sit at and hold that whether, you know, whether you're just beginning and it's closer to a 10-minute pace or whether you're on that elite level 
and between obstacles, you know, or actually between obstacles, it's going to, if people are averaging what a seven or eight minute pace, uh, to podium in a lot of these races, you know, between obstacles, they're probably sub six, maybe even, you know, in that five, five to six minute mile range in between obstacles. You know more about the podium guys than I do. Is that about right from your experience? It really depends on the race. I mean, um, you know, something like a Conquer the Gauntlet where the obstacles are a lot harder, my pace is a lot slower, and I'm not right. – I don't actually check my – I'm not sure what my pace is between obstacles. Uh, I just kind of know what my average pace is overall. So, right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, pe- people are moving out pretty good, especially – I'd say that first mile is always, you know, is always fast. People are – yeah, you know, get the rabbits at are around there. six, right? Either depending depending on the level, the field of competition, it may be just above six, or it may be significantly below six. But it's you know somewhere in that <laughs> right. somewhere in that range, right off the get uh, off the gun uh, until people right. settle and then, in. Right, because they said you're going to take depending on the obstacle, it takes you slow down, stop at the obstacle, move through that, and then you know your splits in between are going to be quicker than your overall pace dictates. But you know, kind of learning to settle into whatever that pace is is going to be done on some of those long that long slow distance and the bad thing about your those long slow distance runs is especially the elite to competitive wave people they're usually very type a personalities not always but still a very competitive person because they that's why they run in those type, those heats and telling them to slow down does not register, especially when you go, hey, we want you to go faster, so slow down. Yeah. So your heart rate can stay in that in that zone. That doesn't make any sense. I could tell you all the science behind it, but trust me, it makes sense. So one of those where almost, if you can kind of carry on the conversation, you might be going a little bit too slow, but if you're having to stop and slow down, catch your breath, that sort of stuff, then you're going too fast on those long, slow distance runs. You know, for some people, you may have to start out at um, – you know, at a power walk or something like that, just to keep your heart, your heart rate in that right zone, because it it does it can be slow, especially starting out. So yeah, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm a, uh, I think we're on the same page there. You know, I'm a big believer in aerobic training. I think you just get a lot of it develops your physiology a lot to the point where it, it allows for faster running. And I used to exactly. when I would train for marathons, right? So before I got into OCR. I would do most of my runs at like eight minute per mile or sometimes like eight thirty. And then I would show up on race day and run, you know, six fifty two minute miles for three hours. And do right. it and do it well, right? Like it's not like it, like I wouldn't blow up. I would usually dead even split or slightly negative, um, with doing almost no um doing no speed work. It was like always just doing aerobic training. So right. I'm a big believer yeah, in that. Yeah, if you can expand that aerobic range and get your be able to push harder at that and keep keep that during race day, that will serve you well during the race. But um, and then for your world's toughest, and this I'm kind of you know admittingly stealing from other people because I've never ran those, but I have a lot of clients this year who are wanting to get into that in this coming season. So, um, but it's going to be long runs, you know, maybe a long slow distance run after a leg day a long, slow distance run right after another long, slow distance run the previous day, you know, learning to work when the body's tired. One, is kind of an active recovery, so your body is learning how to work while it's not necessarily in the best shape. And then also just the mindset of that exact same thing. Your body's going to learn how to, how to work when it's not necessarily wanting to work. 
and I don't mean work as in the sense of functioning, but the in the sense of going out doing things above and beyond what it's normally doing. Gotcha. So as your as your athletes transition from more of an off season into more you know, more race specific, you know, they they start get, getting into races, you know, once a month or once mm-hmm. every couple of weeks. What do you kind of tweak and change in their scheduling? Um, with that, I definitely put a taper in there the week, and it depends on how important the race is, um, whether it's their main race they want to do that that year. Just, you know, if it's someone who has, like I have a couple clients who have uh, lifetime passes to conquer the gauntlet. So if it's, you know, just another conquer the gauntlet that they're, they want to do well in but not necessarily have be their best race, we won't taper for quite as long. But going into it, um, uh, talk myself into a corner. <laughs> Can you repeat the question for me? So just kind of what do you, what do you change in their scheduling between you know the more of their off season right. and then more of their kind of in season? You know when they're they're starting to do races every right. you know, so, month or so. So with that, um, their lifting will go from off season being very strength based uh, into in season being very uh, endurance based. So the rep ranges will move, the sets will move um, accordingly. That's one thing. That's the that's one of the big things. Uh, running distances are going to move. We're in the off season. Um, they may be a little bit heavier because we're not having to rest four races in season. Depending on when the schedule is, that's going to tweak. So those long slow distances might not be quite as long as they were, you know, back in January, or might not be quite as long as they were two weeks before the race, just because of how that taper works. So, and then. The, and the workouts themselves will be a lot more OCR specific. So whereas, like I said, very power in the off seasons can be very strength based, a lot of big multi joint lifts, things like that, um, lots of big squats, deadlifts, uh, weighted pull ups, things like that. During season, it might just be pull ups, you know, just max number of pull ups, how many you can rip out. For uh, legs, it will be a lot of single leg stuff. Because once we get into activity, there is very few things we do in OCR or life, for that matter, that is we're doing we're pushing with both at the same time. You know, as you know, running you're pushing off one leg at a time. Slack line you got to balance one leg at a time. So for a number of obstacles, except maybe a wall, if someone is a two foot, which a lot of people are, unless they're a two footed jumper, that's going to be one of the only things they're doing with two feet. Uh, equally during the race. So that's, I think, one of the biggest things that I do is moving to a lot of unilateral training. And that goes the same thing for arms, because unless your arms are directly hooked on to something at the same length, you're going to be pulling differently with each arm, too, depending on the obstacle. So, yeah. I think that's real interesting. I like that uh, I like that approach. I haven't been doing much single-leg uh, movement training, so I think I might incorporate that into my off-season this year. <laughs> But I, I definitely, yeah. I'm definitely a big believer in the single arm, you know, like like you said, arm training, right? Because it's, it's specific, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, how many times do you hang from one arm, you know, spe- even if it's for a millisecond, right? Like you're going to make that transition, you're still, I still only have one arm at the bar or one arm on the hold as I'm moving. Right, right. So, and the, uh, again, agree with the back-to-back long days for uh, obviously ultra-distance mm-hmm. obstacle course racing. I think you get um you can get a similar physiological effect and similar training effect without you know causing as much stress on the joints and the mind right versus exactly 
you'll see, I, like, I see a lot of people will post, you know, especially, they'll be like, oh, I did, you know, 30 miles at Toughest on, or Tough Mudder on Saturday, and I did 10 miles on Sunday, and now I can't walk for two weeks. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, you probably would have been better off just doing 10 and 10, and then training again starting on Tuesday. Um, so I think, I, you know, people, you know, you see what other people do, and you want to mimic them, and it, you know, it sounds epic, just kind of, you know, Everyone's at a different level, so just kind of, I would say, keep that in mind, uh, kind of anybody yeah. listening. I'm, I made that mistake on my own training last year. I was getting ready for uh, Worlds, and I knew I needed to get, you know, if I can run 10 miles in the real world, I can do nine miles with the obstacles. No, I forgot. I didn't know those hills were going to be there. That was, you know, unfair on their part. They didn't tell me about that, <laughs> but I should have known. But yeah. yeah, it's tricky when it's called Blue Mountain, right? That's Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> Why would there be up. a mountain there? <laughs> <laughs> I looked it up, but, you know, it wasn't on a mountain. It was like a little ski resort. Okay, no, be that, the elevation's not that high. I'll be fine. But, you know, so I go I you know, go to do a 10-mile run here at home, and I jump, you know, I wasn't sticking with that kind of 10% increase each week uh, as far as how to move that up. I just kind of skipped from eight miles or seven miles right out of 10. Like, oh, it's only, you know, it's only three more miles. not that big of a deal. It was a big deal. I didn't run for the rest of the week. <laughs> oh, so that so that kind of put just because it hurt so bad, and I wanted to be able to I'm like okay since I did this I need to be able to recover and so I can uh, kick it back up for the next week. But yeah, it's just well like you said, don't go out and do something that you, just because you see other people doing it to try and make up for it, whether it be for the social media experience or for you know just for your own training. You know, just play your own game, move up incrementally, play it smart. And then go from there. Yeah, spot on. The uh, I think a lot of people kind of do things for social media when, you know, realistically, most of your training, no, no one cares and no one sees, right? Like you're, <laughs> right. yeah. I, I, I typically I train twice a day most days, and it's, you know, I don't post about it, and it's just, just it's just what I'm doing. You know, you, you don't get to show off until race day. That's the celebration right. of what what you've been working on. Um, one other thing I wanted to touch on that you said was, you know, you know, you're a big advocate on weight training for OCR athletes. Mm -hmm. And I am, I, I'd actually prefer if we were at opposing point of views, cause I think this would make for a more interesting <laughs> podcast, but I agree with that. I'm a big, um, and part of it's because of my background, cause that's what I, uh, I've been doing for the last couple of years. So that's what I enjoy doing. So I'm going to put more effort into that if I enjoy it. Um, so I, that's one of the reasons I do it. But then the other part is I just don't think. You can get that same stress to your body um, just doing body weight movements. Just my two cents, and I think, right. especially for ultra distance OCR, right, where I'm doing, you know, repeated. I'm just doing them over and over again for 24 hours, right? Like I'm not going to practice doing some of these movements for 24 hours, just you know, to build up that strength. Instead, I increase the stress, uh, cut the time down significantly into like a one one hour, one and a half hour workout or whatever it is um, to try to get that same uh, response. And uh, yeah, based right. on my personal experience, I mean, I, you know, last year at World's Toughest, I the, the only two obstacles I failed were the grappler twice, which is like that you throw that ball up on top of the. Oh, um, right. The, which, I mean, that's because I'm uncoordinated. It has nothing to do with my <laughs> strength, right? Like. It, there's a reason. There's a reason. I always say there's a reason I do repetitive motion sports, right? Like running and, you know, um, 
I guess OCR is not as repetitive because there's you need some variation there, but still, it's I'm still hanging not, from my hands, right? Yeah, it's not motor skill based, other than move your hands across the the rig. Yeah, I, I don't do ball sports, right? Like I don't throw, <laughs> I I don't throw balls. It's just not you know, right. not, not my and style. I'm approaching it from a very similar aspect. Um, you know, I have a weightlifter background. Uh, played soccer from the time I was four or five. Uh, moved up, and then even then, even within that, it was kind of odd that I was uh, lifting weights while playing soccer. But um, going back, looking at it through a different lens since I've had you know more time in the classroom, on top of all of the you know strength to do the obstacles, things like that, lifting weights has also been shown as, for lack of a better term, a body hardening, a more res- uh, more resilience building exercise. So those people who have lifted weights, one, you're going to have better bone density. Running does help build bone density somewhat, but not on the same level that, you know, putting a squat bar on your back does or putting your uh, joints through some of those motions in a very simplified manner. Uh, Putting that weight on your skeleton adds stress. Your body responds to that stress and says, hey, if we're going to be putting this kind of load on the system, we need to have a bigger, stronger system. So on top of making your muscles stronger, it also adds a density to your bones to be able to uh, take that weight. So same, that goes for football players who get hit. That's why they don't break bones when most of us, uh, you know, if I get hit by, you know, those big giant linebackers, I'm probably going to die. As opposed to, you know, Dar- Darren Sproles, who's roughly my same size, he, can get to, he gets drilled by those guys daily. Now, granted, he has pads on. But still, you know, very similar. There's a reason why he's not breaking by guys who are hitting him who are one and a half times the size. It's because his skeleton has built up that resilience. Um, so same thing for you take that to OCR. We always see people, you know, slipping off a rig, falling off a rig, twisting, breaking, whatever. You know, it's not uncommon, and it's more for the open heat people. But that's kind of where I talk with my general population uh, clientele as well, like, you know, this, not only are you getting the physiological adaptations, but your body will be just stronger in general from the from the aspect that it will be able to handle more stress. You know, whether that is an acute stress placed on an outside force, you know, whether you're falling off the rig and, you know, your knee hitting something like that, because we've heard of people breaking bones like that, or, or just that repeated stress of running a five-mile race. Because how often, how many races have we been to, where you know the, invariably someone from the open wave falls and breaks something or falls and twists something? You know, it's sad from said that that happens, but there's a reason why not very many elites are having it happen because many of the elites lift weights, or even the even the competitive wave people that that's not happening to. One, they've they've played this game before, but also their body is built up to resist those forces. So, yeah. Yeah, I know that's that's scientifically backed, uh, and then from a, like an empirical data standpoint, you know, I do a lot of my training with running clubs because you know it's just a group of people who are going to, go to run for a long time, so it makes it a lot easier to go running. Uh, specifically in Kansas City, I run with a group called Sunday Run Day North, and they set out aid stations every two miles out to eight miles. So essentially, you can run, uh, you can actually run nineteen because if you go a mile past the last aid station and a mile back, you have like nineteen miles with eight stations every two miles um, nice. on a marked course. So it's pretty 
I'm sorry, 18 miles. My math has been all messed up this week. <laughs> I messed up on the Overcoming Run podcast too. I used I had poor math there because I, I did it off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, anyway, my, my I, math isn't good. I didn't catch you either. So oh, good, good. <laughs> uh, well, I said I said in order to get 40 miles, you'd have to do each obstacle eight times, which is true if the obstacles were open all the time. But um, right. I also said that you'd skip the obstacle twice. So really, you'd only do them like six times for 40 miles ish. Um, Anyway, I'm dig- digressing. Yeah. Uh, like I said, from an empirical uh, data standpoint, right, the – I know a lot of the guys who go to, like, the run clubs will – you know, a lot of them will get injured, you know, over, basically overuse injuries because right. th- they're always running. That's the only sport they do. They never lift weights, and, like, that's their – you know, all right, I, I run year-round. I never take an off-season. I never take breaks, and I think it just beats up your body physically and mentally um, right. versus, again, from a, a personal experience level – I was bouncing back and forth between, you know, strength-based and speed-based sports, hence the name of the podcast. <laughs> um, good plug for myself. But, there you go. Yeah, and uh, I found, like, when my friends and stuff were getting injured, I found I was a little more resilient than them because um, – I think because of the, some of the stuff you said, you know, and it prevents some of that overuse of, you know, whatever, stress fracture and plantar fasciitis, all, this, all these common right. runner injuries, right? Like, I've – I've just never had them. Um, the only serious injury I've ever had was I tore my pec in early February, which will be talked about a couple times on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, but that's just from – I was using a lot of weight. It was bad. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have been using that much weight. Uh, although it was within my – you know, I could I could do five reps of that weight, um, and I'd done it before. It just uh, – I don't know. My body didn't like it that day. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Let's see what else we got here. All right, so so you you've trained you train a lot of people. Uh, I know from the elite level all the way down to the general population, like we talked about. So give me some like common trends you see. Um, so I'd say from the elite level, you know, maybe common mistakes they're making, and then you know from let's start with there. So elite level, maybe some common mistakes you think you uh, some of the OCR athletes are making. Okay, so like one thing that I kind of already touched on was just wanting to run faster all the time that that long slow distance i don't think a lot of elites or any or a lot of just general population or general public don't necessarily know the physiological purpose behind the long slow distance so i think that's a big one um across the board um for uh more of that competitive middle of the pack group um i think a lot of that group wants to try and work at that elite level uh, tomorrow rather than building up to it over time. So a lot of that group, I think, will go out and push themselves too hard on whatever the exercise is, so just kind of staying in that same, you know, about like I said, well, like I did to myself. You know, I wanted to be able to run that 10 miles. Yep, I ran it, and then I didn't run for the next week. So knowing kind of where – they are as opposed to where they think they are or where they uh, want to be. Um, just kind of that self-awareness sort of deal. And then for a lot of the mistakes, I think the open wave people make is going to be kind of similar to that. With the open wave, I think when they uh, sign up for whether it be a you know your neighborhood 5K or that first Warrior Dash or whatever, um, they kind of want to go out and just start running to get ready for it. And I heard a 
a quote, and I can't remember who it was. Um, I think it was off a different podcast. But people want to run to be fit when, in fact, you need to be fit to be able to run. So with that, that's kind of why that couch to 5K starts off with more walking than jogging because, like we talked, like we just finished up with, that repetitive stress on the body, something will give eventually until that body is ready for it. So people are like, oh, I'm just going to go out and go for a jog like I did in college, which was or like I did in high school 15, 20 years ago and hadn't done anything since. Yeah. You know, we, we can't quite do that like we used to. Um, no, even in, even with uh, going back to the elites, they want to keep, oh, you know, if I drop off, I'll, I'll lose everything. Okay, no, not, you know, one, you've already built up to this higher level yeah. of fitness anyway. So your body will know what it's doing with that. And then I think the other problem that I think a lot of elites have, especially if they have a strong running background, because um, runners are kind of like you talked about earlier, they just get a lot of bad ideas in their head, and they just want to keep going. Like they're like you said, they don't take an off season. Like I have uh, one client, Randy. You better be listening to this. Um, she's already said like, oh, I, you know, I can't do an off season. I don't know what to do. Like, don't worry, I'll I'll tell you. But it's, you know, you're not just going to be sitting on the couch twiddling your thumbs five days a week for resting. You know, we're still going to be working out. We're still going to be moving. But it's not this 365, you know, at least seven miles a day uh, for your easy days and then ramping it up to 20 from, you know, on your on your hard days. It's, all right, you know, we're going to let you rest, let your body undo everything that you've done to it over the past, well, let's see, depending on where you live, March through October, and, you know, because uh, ideally, people, if that's their season, they're working up to October, so they've put a lot of stress come that last race in October or November for World's Toughest uh, competitors. After that, two to three, you know, three, two weeks at a very minimum, three weeks to a month off of, you know, just maybe three days a week lifting weights, getting some light runs in, and we're not lifting heavy weights at this point, just teaching, letting that body relax, take some of that stress off. You're not going to lose a whole lot in that because, like I said, we're still moving, we're still lifting weights, but it is a big time to let that body recover, get hormones back in balance for a lot of people because you've just been working so much. So, yeah. Yeah, again, uh, on the same page here, the, you know, if people are doubting some of that, you know, aerobic backing up a little bit if people are down to some of that aerobic training to build faster speed you know there's several i mean look at any big running book out there i mean jack daniels uh the running coach not the alcohol uh <laughs> is a great book uh, about you know run training um i model a lot of my personal training off of him um matt fitzgerald wrote a book called 80 20 who basically says 80 percent of your run should be aerobic and easy and the other 20 percent should be hard and you know, fast via intervals or special right. training, stuff like that. So there's a lot of a lot of data backing it up. And I know some people look at some of the elites and go, oh, well, you know, this guy only runs, you know, four times a week or three times a week and, and runs whatever pace, you know. Um, and I think, again, people get confused because that guy may have, you know, thousands of hours of training <laughs> background previous. He may have run in high school and college and, you know, so he can get away with that. And then some people are just genetically gifted where they can get away with, you know, a little bit um, a little bit faster running at a little bit lower speed. But I think a lot of those that don't have the, tr the run training volume 
would get even better if they uh, followed more of an aerobic, that 80-20 approach. Exactly. Uh, my two cents there. Um, are you familiar with uh, not a fitness author, but uh, uh, kind of? I think I don't know if sure what he is. Psychologist, maybe Malcolm Gladwell. Are you familiar with him? I'm mm-hmm. not. Huh. Okay, so so Malcolm Gladwell, and I think I have an article prepared for this that I just never put out. Um, I think it's on my desktop. So Malcolm Gladwell says that in order to achieve mastery in anything, the average person will spend ten thousand hours doing that. Oh, activity. okay, yeah, yeah. I've heard the oh. ten thousand hours. I just didn't know uh, yeah. the name associated with it. Yep, yep. So I think people. Um, one of the confusion points is that people go, "Oh, well, I need to do." I'm sorry, and it's not just ten thousand hours. It's ten thousand hours of deliberate practice. Is the actual yes. phrase? Yes. Yeah. So. People go, oh, well, I need to do 10,000 hours to achieve – like, if, you, if I hit 10,000 hours, I achieve mastery. And it's like, well, it doesn't guarantee mastery. It's the av- – like, the average master has a practice for 10,000 hours. Right. And um, so there's a book called Outliers where they talk about it. Uh, there's com- a couple other books, uh, like Talent is Overrated, where it basically says, you know, when people put in the time – and, again, it's, spread, it's not o- over a year or over two years. It's over a lifetime. Yeah. Um, they they get better uh, as you get close to that ten thousand hours. You know you you achieve that level of mastery. I'm not sure where I was going with that, uh, <laughs> but no. I've, and this is this is going off topic a little bit. But I think a, a lot of parents have heard that, um, and that kind of bleed with that it bleeds down into youth sports, and so that's where you get these parents you know wanting their kids to spend because the math works out to three hours a day, I think between the age of five. And 18, you know, I'm, I'm probably wrong on that. But you see these parents, you know, their kids have to be working on this stuff for, you know, three hours a day of direct practice, three hours a day of direct practice right. and things like that. But along those lines, like you said, it's more of a lifetime rather than a, you know, finite skill set. Because, you know, taking you, for example, just because I know a little bit more about your background, you know, you didn't start out running marathons and ultras on, you know, year two. You know, maybe maybe marathons, but that was not, you know, you're not finishing top 10 every time in those ultras on your second year. You know, you have to build up to that and until you get to where you did this year, some ungodly strange number of 24-hour runs for some reason. <laughs> that, you know, it's, you hear people like, well, Evan did it or, you know, so-and-so can do that. Like, good for so-and-so. They've been doing this for X amount of years. You know, it wasn't just a, you know, one-time skill thing from when they were, kids up to high school and then they stopped no it's been you know now i know you weren't a sports guy as a kid but you know since college you've been building up to that yeah since, i, mean, I, I played sports i played soccer growing up right so that was a form oh, okay. of running and then i was on cross country right. in high school but i wasn't very good and i didn't i wasn't very i show up to practice <laughs> most of the times but not all the time you know um but yeah there was a base nice. there there's still there's still some yeah, sort of see, physical yeah. movement base Right, so you had somewhat of a base there, but like I said, you weren't at a super high level for, you know, you didn't have D1 schools knocking down your door no. to come play soccer or to come run on their team. I barely made, I exactly. could barely make the uh, high school team. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, so it's just one of those things where, uh, you know, that 10,000 hours is very, and actually now they've gone and shown for, and this is going to one of the kids on the youth sports side, so I'll try and stay out of that, but it's 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, but also with a wide breadth of other skills um, outside of that one as well, because then that kind of gets into the burnout and that sort of uh, mental capacity of it as well. 
that if you just spend 10,000 hours focusing on one handful of skills, that's not going to work. So you have to spend those hours on, you know, that handful of skills and then another X, you know, however many other X thousand hours on complementary skills to come up and build that so you don't go crazy working on those, that handful. Yeah, I know I've seen studies that say the, especially for youth, you know, being well-rounded is actually going to be better for later in life, yep. right? Because, yep. again, if, yep. what if you don't, you decide you don't like running, you like obstacle course racing, or you like whatever, whatever you want to look at. You know, being having that well-rounded base, I think, especially for obstacle course racing, is going to be better. Because, I mean, even the sport's been around. When I say sport, I'm referring to like the modern era where you know, world championships, mm-hmm. Spartan, and tough moderates. It's been around for like seven years, right? And again, right. already you've seen such drastic changes in the obstacles and the skills required to do well. You know, like the, you know, I guess Hobie Cole is a bad example because he won essentially the first year <laughs> Spartan and then won like this past, or not this past year, but two years ago or whatever, yeah. a little over a year ago. Yeah. But the, you know, I think a lot of the other names that you saw showing up in 2011 and 2012 are no longer in the sport. You know, either they right. lost interest or they uh, didn't have the skill set required, you know, to do well at stuff like OCR World Championships. Um, right. You know, it's more than just running and, you know, carrying a sandbag. You know, the rig, exactly. the amount of variation you need on the rig, stuff like rigs is, is pretty profound. So. Well, in that, and look at, you know, arguably the biggest name in the sport ha- hasn't won OCR Worlds yet that I know of, at least not in the uh, the standard distance, but Atkins, yep. he comes from a mountain biking background, not a running, you know, or that was he, that he was doing that competitively when he came into OCR. So, you know, it's one of those things where having that, you know, yes, that's still a endurance sport, but not nearly the same as OCR or running, but it's one of those where, like you said, it's he's obviously doing a lot of OCR and running now since that's his paycheck. But uh, just one of those things where the the bleed over can help out a lot. And I think that even ties back into the doing a lot of aerobic, like long slow aerobic training, right? Because on a mountain bike, yeah, your heart rate's spiking for periods, but at the same time, for most cycling, you're doing you know, your heart rate's significantly lower than it is running. Right. Um, so I think I think you know, and then people typically go for longer bike rides. You know, like you yeah. go for an hour run, and most people think that's good. Versus we go for an hour bike ride. It's like nice warm up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like all right. When does the workout start? So yeah, it, I, you know, a five mile run might be, uh, you know, might be someone's limit, but then they'll go hop on a twenty mile bike ride. So. Yeah, I used to have a friend uh, that I worked with who was a big cyclist. He was, you know, all about cycling. Mm-hmm. And he was, he didn't do a lot of run training, but he was super fast. And I think a lot of that was just from, again, lots of aerobic training on his bike. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd go for a three-hour ride on some days and, you know, go home after work and, you know, cycle for an hour or two. And um, I think that transferred over real well. So Probably. I, I started incorporating some spin classes and stuff into my training to boost my aerobic capability. So I guess we'll find out how it works in a week. <laughs> well, I've, along those lines, I've been having um, a lot of, I don't say a lot, I've been experimenting with some of my clients to start adding in uh, more cycling. Because like I said, one, for that aerobic training, but two, also just to, to reduce some of that wear and tear. Because uh, I've had a couple clients that are a little bit older, Lucas, um, who 
you know, towards the end of the season, just that constant running over from March all the way through starts to wear on them. Okay, what can we do to keep that anaerobic, or what can we do to keep that aerobic base, but not, but cut down on the pounding on the ankles, knees, hips, all that sort of stuff? Cycling. So that's one thing that whether you're working around an injury or just wanting to prevent an injury, some of the changes in that can help a lot. I also find it a little less stressful, right? So when I run, I try not to be too concerned about pace, but at the same time, I know what like a good running pace is and what a crappy running pace is for me, <laughs> right? Right. Like it, it's hardwired into my brain. I can't let go of that. When I cycle, because I did, I've only done some, tri- I've done a couple triathlons, and you know, but I, I've never done just straight a cycling race. I've right. done a bike tour, so maybe that's not true. Um, it's not really a race though, but like these. It doesn't like I'm not concerned about my pace as much. Right, it's um, a lot more relaxing, just mentality from the yes. start. Yeah. So like I have no problem going to spin class, and I've, you know, I have no idea how long I, how much quote unquote miles I covered. Um, right. Because it doesn't matter. It's just I was just elevating my heart rate for 45 minutes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and then my my gym has uh, espresso trainer, so it's like a video game bicycle. So I ride that sometimes too. Oh, nice. You, you get to like move your guy on the screen. <laughs> and it, like, keeps tra- it keeps track of like what stages you've ridden. It's, it's pretty fun. That's how to keep how to keep me focused. <laughs> yeah. And then it, the other cool thing is so, so you enter your login and it remembers you. So it, when you ride, there'll be like a ghost of you from a previous ride if you ridden that course already. Oh, uh, so it's like it's like Mario Kart, but for cycling and working out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no power ups though. They need to work on power ups. <sighs> Yeah, but see, then you, then you start cheating, and you know that wouldn't be wouldn't get. Oh as yeah, that's true. Out. That's true. That's a good point. Oh, they do have games though, so like you can add, you can go to instead of riding like an actual stage, you can go to like play Dragon Chase or something. You ride around, and collect like power ups and <laughs> stuff like that. But it's, it's it's that's like free form, right? It's just like a big open area, and you just kind right. of zigzag around. Hmm. Anyway, it's good. I'm going to definitely incorporate some more cycling into my off-season um, and then, again, continue to use it for adding aerobic training to my in-season racing. Right. All right, I think uh, I think we got a pretty good coverage on that. Um, last thing, I know uh, we were talking about it on Facebook Messenger recently, but Spartan recently came out with a bunch of new age brackets. And right. we don't talk about Spartan on this podcast that much, but – since we had already had a conversation a little bit about it, I figured mm. uh, we can discuss it a little bit. But I know, so the if you're not tracking, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure Spartan did away with Masters completely. Like, that's no longer a thing. And they've instead replaced it with all these different age brackets. Um, so right. it's like They still have, I think they still have a Masters, but I think it's like either 15 up or 16 up or something like that. So it's 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 extreme Masters. Grandmasters is what Yeah, Grandmasters, yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, caused some bunch of, a bit of a stir in the OCR community. So I just kind of wanted to get some of your thoughts on that, on okay. the different age brackets. And I know they, <laughs> they spread out the qualifications very weird. Um, right. So yeah. So um, with the age groups, if I don't have it here in front of me, but I think it's like 13 to 18 or 13 to 19 is one of the age groups. Uh, they have 20s, you know, 20 to 24, 25 to 29. And then the part that's making everybody mad is the 30 to 39, 40 to 49, and then 50 plus or 50 to uh, 50 to 59. 
um, whatever those are. And so um, a lot of people are saying that, you know, the aging between 40 and 49 is too big or the aging between 50 and 59 is too big that they should make an 18 to 29 age bracket or an 18 to 25 and then 30, to, you know, split up that way. Um, with that, I can see where they're coming from. Um, I'm not 40 or I'm not 49, so I don't have that to go off of. So I may be speaking out of turn, but also just from watching, you know, my family age, watching having clients at different uh, ranges in the age spectrum, aging is very uh, individual. It's all, you know, from being genetics, how just how some people age, to how you took care of yourself during your life, whether you did a good job of keeping yourself fit or whether you, know, you had a, a period of time where you didn't do so well and now you're having to play catch up, things with that. And then, you know, people arguing, well, you know, why does 20 to, why does the 20 year old age group get a big, why do they get two uh, groups rather than just one like everybody else? And just from a personal standpoint, um, you know, I'm not going to say late bloom or anything like that. But just from the sake of putting on mass and muscle mass, I changed more from 18 to 25 than I have since or in any other phase of my life. Now, granted, I'm only in my early 30s, uh, but still, like, after 25, or I should say 18 to 25 was all fairly the same. You know, I got a little bit faster, a little bit stronger, but also had other stuff going on. But not until age 25 did I actually put on any quote-unquote muscle per se because I was still running still playing soccer things like that and when you know once all that kind of stopped because I got uh just other stuff happened in my life but that's when my body finally put on muscle so that's kind of when you see all these different age groups you want to have these 18 year olds compete with 26 27 well we it's no I don't think too many people are going to argue that men uh in are reach their physiological peak, athletic peak, you want to, whatever you want to call it, as far as muscle development, things of that nature, at age 25. So you want these 18-year-olds who are maybe just going through uh, puberty or you know, just getting a handle on it, starting to grow a mustache, good for them. But you know, I want them to compete with these 25-year-olds who have you know, 10, arguably 10 years of weight training under their belt. Now they've got, you know, muscle maturation, things of that nature. They've got 10 more, you know, uh, over half of these kids' lifetime of running experience under the belt. And you're going to call that, you want that to be one group? Personally, I don't get it. Now, moving into the older age brackets, 30 to 39. Now, am I arguing that there is a difference between a 30-year-old and a 39-year-old physiologically, you know, wear and tear? No. But... What was it? Last two years, Spartans. The Spartan championship was won by a 39-year-old. Wasn't uh, and you no, know, you'll know the ages on these people more than I will. But isn't Cody is not Cody Moat is not a spring chicken as far as the racing world is considered. Um, I think he's. I think they said he was late 30s, at least mid 30s. Um, Hobie, you know, he won last year when he was 39. So I'm not seeing that whole split there that, you know, 35-39 or, you know, 30-34, 35-39 to 39 should be split. You know, for people in their 40s, again, kind of that same argument, you know, 
Hobie's 40. Now, granted, he's obviously an outlier compared to most 40-year-olds, but he was still up there competing with these younger people. Yeah. And so with that, you know, granted, you should take your average, you should be talking about your average 40-year-old versus your average 49-year-old. Is there going to be a gap there? Yes. But also, where are your biggest numbers coming from? You know, your biggest numbers are going to be in that 25 to 35 uh, age group, I think. So splitting up those like they are, I think, makes a lot of sense. But, yeah, it's just one of those things that with aging being so individualized on how you've cared for yourself and how you've trained um, or haven't trained through your lifetime, I'm, I get their argument. I just don't necessarily agree with it. Yeah, I mean, I can say for again from personal experience, I'm I'm gonna go ahead and say I got I've gotten faster every year, um, with the exception of maybe this year, but that's not necessarily that's more to do with my racing schedule, at, at least I think so. Uh, right. <laughs> then, um, but you know, every year I would set PRs in uh, races or you know move up in placements and stuff like that, you know, since, for the last 15 years and. Um, I think a lot of that's to do with obviously training and um, diet and uh, general body care, you know, no drinking right. and stuff like that. So, right. Yeah, we were on the same page. The um, and then from like I'd say a, a business side too, right? You want it's better to have to get some younger blood into the sport, right? Because if that guy is you know commits to the brand and becomes obsessive like most people are that listen to this podcast or check them out to run guys and stuff like that. Right. Like you've now get, you now have a customer for the next 40 years versus, you know, if you have a 40 to 45 age bracket, you know, I, I don't know how much longer that guy's doing an OCR. Right. Yeah, maybe he'll, maybe he'll go until he dies, but, um, probably not, you know, chances are he'll lose interest. So, right. I saw, I, go ahead. I think focusing on that younger because you you want that that younger base to come in because they're the ones who are probably going to show up with their friends um, and kind of right. grow, grow the sport from the young, young youth up. So. Right. It's I, easier I to it's easier to convince an office of twenty twenty two to twenty seven year olds to go do a weekend race than it is to convince an office of forty to forty seven year olds uh, to go yes. do a race. And right. you know, one argument by. And I don't know who it was, but someone said, no, you're ups- – they're upsetting – or I think his actual words are pissing off. But, you know, they're they're upsetting the apple cart for the, for the group that has the most disposable income. Okay, I get that argument. But, again, that group might have the most disposable income, but it's not the biggest group. Like, like we just said, they're not going to pull the most people. Those people who are already committed to the lifestyle 20 years ago and just here in the last seven years – this racing has come along or like for me, I didn't start it until three years ago. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things, like I said, if you can hook them when they're younger from a business standpoint, it's going to go up the chain. Now, are they upsetting people who are invested? Yes. But if they can get people to commit to this now, who are going to have 20 years worth of races rather than maybe five years left or, you know, are one injury away from a lot slower recovery than that 20 year two year old. So it's just, I get it, but sorry, dude. Yeah, I mean, people. No one ever. People usually don't like change, right? I mean, yeah. You know, if you were, if you were 36 a couple of years ago, and you've been looking forward to this Masters division, and now <laughs> it's fucking like, right? That sucks. 
Because this year, this year you were like, this next year's my year. I'll be in the Masters. I'll be on that Masters, you know, top ten leaderboard or whatever right. position. And now, now it doesn't exist, right? So. Well, then just go uh, to a different series that has a Masters division. Problem solved. That's true. That is true. Um, yeah. All right. So I think we we covered a pretty good range of topics there. Uh, off season training, some general fitness stuff, and then talking about the Spartan age groups, uh, which again I concur with uh, I think almost <laughs> all the statements you just said. At least uh, out of this, we... you... go ahead. Yep, go for it. At least out of this, you got your single leg training that we that was new or, or something didn't. That is new. About, that so. is new for me. So I, I am I am excited to do that. Um, before we go, any sponsors, people, whatever you want to thank, what uh, have you? Um, thank you to my wife for letting me go to my races and stuff like that. She's done one race, decided it wasn't for her, but she still let me go off and do all this stuff and take time out to train uh, other people for it as well. So I want to say thank you to her. Um, sponsors, no one's sponsoring me yet, so if you're listening, heads up. Um, <laughs> shameless plug. Uh, but say uh, shout out to the KCOCR group, um, the group here in Kansas City that uh, gets together. We try and get together every weekend. Doesn't doesn't happen all that, but uh, training together. We actually have an end of the season party coming up here uh, next weekend that you're gonna skip. Um, but yeah, that's about it. Cool, and keep an eye out for uh, J Run Fitness. Yep, and also for Conquer the Gauntlet Pro Team, working through some things. Not not gonna announce it on air yet, but <laughs> not uh, yet. Some pretty cool some pretty cool stuff coming. So just kinda keep an eye out for both of those. And Jared again, uh thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm gonna give a final shout out to Merrill because this will be the last podcast I do before World Stuff is Mutter. And so if you're listening to this and you are headed to Vegas, definitely say hi. I will see you on the course. And uh I think that's it. All right, thank you.